Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies, and today I'm pulling out one of my favorite podcasts from years ago. It is breastfeeding and epidurals, and I thought it was really relevant right now because a lot of postpartum parents are not being able to see lactation consultants or even their pediatrician that often. And my guest, Diane Cassidy, who's an IBCLC, that's a lactation consultant, she talks about the effects an epidural can have on breastfeeding. Now, she's not demonizing it in any way, but she's giving a heads up of some obstacles and downfalls people face when they do and just what you need to get past that. And if Right now, you're not able to seek external help. It's so helpful to know what those issues are and to know that you can get to the other side. She gives really important, helpful tips. So I hope you enjoy that. Now, before we get to that, just a heads up about a few things. When I do these podcast recordings, it's real life. And what was happening with Diane at the time, her dog was barking in the background. So don't be surprised if you hear a dog. And actually, Lily, who was listening to the podcast recently said she thinks she can even hear a squeaky toy. So I don't think it's going to bother you too much. Um, But I did want to give the heads up if you're like, I think there's a dog barking. Indeed, there is a dog barking, but it's not much. So enjoy that. Now, before we get going, I wanted to say thank you to people who are leaving ratings and review. It really helps people find the podcast. And there was a review that came recently that I wanted to share. It says, great resource. I struggled with the decision of whether I wanted to have a child. I listened to so many episodes of Yoga Birth Baby while walking around and jogging and thinking about this question. Hearing more about the physical, mental, and emotional process of pregnancy, childbirth, and parenting was so helpful to me as I went through that process. I'm now 34 weeks pregnant, and I continue to listen to yoga birth babies throughout my pregnancy. Grateful to Deb and all her guests for their helpful information and insights. And I want to say thank you for that, and I'm so glad we played a small role in supporting you through this experience. Okay, what else is going on? So the studio is now online. It's crazy. Everything is online. It's really exciting. In fact, it made me think that, of course, we're going to keep our brick and mortar studio in New York when we're able to reopen, but we're going to pivot. We're going to do a lot more online. And in fact, we've been running teacher training online this time for the spring. 
And it's a real possibility that we're going to do it online again for the fall. And at first I was nervous. It was an obstacle I hadn't done. But something that whenever I tend to have an obstacle placed in front of me, I look at it as an opportunity to think, how can I use this new technology, doing everything online to enhance what we have, to to turn and make it a little bit better? And I think we've done that. So what's exciting is that considering we're probably going to do the teacher training again in the fall online, we're going to just continue to sharpen what we have and just make this an even better experience because I know some people think, oh, an online training, but Caprice and I have been doing this for so long that we really have it down and we're excited about what we're doing. And I think, again, there's going to look for opportunities to continue to enhance it. And what's also nice is we have a lot of people that say, oh, I wish I could do your training, but I can't get to New York. It's too expensive. Well, now you can do it from your own home. And at a time where a lot of us are doing self, uh, not self-isolation, sorry, social distancing, which also feels like self-isolation, it can be nice just to continue to enhance your skills. And I look forward to working with all our teacher trainees in the fall. And also for our yoga teachers, don't forget, we also have some online courses that you can look at, um, Who's Afraid of the Pregnant Yogi and Teaching the Postnatal Student. And for our pregnant students, again, everything's online. And we also have a little four-class online package you can check out. All right, let's take a super quick break and we come back. Please enjoy my conversation with Diane. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's so fun to be here doing this. I love it. So one thing Diane and I were talking about before we pressed record, um, because we're talking about epidural use and breastfeeding and the impact, I just want the listeners to get and understand my stance and Diane's stance about epidural use. In general, the way that I present information. So I never want to demonize or tell women they shouldn't take an epidural or shame them out of it because it's a personal choice. What we're aiming for is that we're giving you the information to make make an empowered, informed decision. So you can weigh the pros and cons and also look for how to support yourself with whatever choice you've made as a mom. So with that, let's just jump in. Absolutely. (laughs) So um, Dan, can you just talk a little bit, I guess let's go really basic for those that aren't even understanding what, you know, an epidural, the different types of epidural. Do you mind jumping in with that? Sure. Um, So epidural anesthesia is a regional anesthetic which blocks the nerve impulses from the lower spinal segments. And women are drawn to this during labor because it is, you know, really safe pain relief for the most part. Um, It makes them very comfortable. They can stay awake and be awake and interactive and, you know, with their baby there, it doesn't affect their mindset at all. Um, and it, but it does, you know, block the pain from the waist down. Epidurals are actually like, it's kind of like a cocktail of two different medications. Um, and every, every place does their own thing. Um, but it can be, it's usually produced using a class of drugs, local anesthetics like bupivacaine or lidocaine, 
mixed with an opioid, which is usually fentanyl or, or um, sufentanyl. It's injected between the vertebrae and the spine using a catheter, and then the catheter is secured to the back, which kind of facilitates that medication <clears throat> until after delivery. So that's basically what the epidural is. Mm-hmm. And there's two types. And from what's going on, women I often see, even though there's a standard and a combined epidural or walking epidural, most of the women I see get the combined epidural. Would you say that's the case where you're at as well? Um, yes. We don't see too much with people that can, well, we don't really see, we don't see many people that can get a walking epidural. Oh, well, they don't actually walk. But... No, but like a lighter dose. The lighter, lighter dose, right. Um, I have found in with my, our area up here in Rochester that it's kind of like I think it depends on who's giving it, okay. what hospital you're delivering at, who's giving it, who the provider is. Um, some some providers are kind of under the concept of let's do a lighter epidural um, so it'll wear off, and mom is, has the ability to push well. And some have the idea of, I'm going to give this epidural and I'm going to make it so that I don't have to come back and give more medication for breakthrough pain. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a toss up. Um, Spinals, which are different, a little bit different from epidurals only because of how it's, where it's placed. And um, spinals are very quick, like very quickly bring pain relief faster than an epidural does. So there is that mix of spinal epidural as well. But Mm -hmm. here in Rochester, we really only see mostly just your basic epidural anesthesia. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I guess from region to region, it's different. It would be really interesting to know because, you know, with a podcast, we're out everywhere. I'd be curious at different locations, what's prevalent. So what I did do a little bit of research on was the usage of epidural. So Please offer more information if you have more recent. But when I was scouring and I found the Listening to Mothers survey, the most recent I found was 2008, and it was roughly 60% of women. Now, when I just talked to Dr. Sarah Buckley, she actually said it's about 70%. Um, And then I was able to get a 2013 New York State health profile and they focused on just seven of the major Manhattan hospitals. And it was averaging about 80%. And several of the hospitals were up in the 90s. One was even 97%. So it's very important that we're even discussing epidurals because just these statistics are showing that more than half of women will be choosing this. And how can we offer support for that? Do you have any different statistics that I might have not found? Um no. My statistics hover right around with yours. Um, What I used, one of the ones that I used for my thesis was from 2010, and it was 50 to 70%. Okay, yeah, so Um, pretty much right there. Yeah, we're really right around the same number. Um, I know here in Rochester, the bigger hospitals that do more births Mm -hmm. hover around 80 or 90%. Yeah, I was really Uh, surprised when I saw it, 97%. That was pretty upsetting. Yeah. Uh, it is really upsetting. It is. All right. So we've now kind of basically established a lot of women using epidurals, what an epidural is, how it's placed, the difference, there's a standard, there's a combined spinal. So let's just jump in and talk about some of the maternal effects. Absolutely. Um, epidurals have been dubbed as being, you know, like great 
perfectly safe pain relief. Um, I feel like a lot of times, you know, a lot of women will talk about their birth experience and tell a, a pregnant woman or a woman that's expecting, yes, definitely get the epidural. It was wonderful. I didn't feel anything. It was great. The baby was born. There was no problems. Um, not realizing that some of the problems that can happen or some of the problems that do happen are actually a direct cause from the epidural. So if we're talking about maternal effect, um, we know that there is a link. There's lots of research that shows there is a link between epidural anesthesia and slowing down labor. Mm-hmm. Um, we do know that it can increase your labor time. We do know that sometimes this will end up in C-section deliveries. Mm-hmm. We are aware of that. Um, I mean, the C- our C-section rate is pretty high, and so is our epidural rate. Right. And there is, you know, research linking that together. So other parts of the maternal effect with this. Now, of course, you know, we can't women should not be getting epidurals before what is it? The active stage of labor, I believe. Mm-hmm. Right. At least that's what we're you know, teaching. So we're looking at right around what, five, six centimeters. Mm-hmm. And then they can, you know, go ahead and get that epidural. But we know that those babies are having a harder time moving down when the mom is laying on her back. Right. So of course the epidural takes away the opportunity for mom to be mobile, to be upright, to be using gravity to move the baby down, to get the baby into an optimal birthing position. So if that baby isn't moving down well, that's slowing down your labor. Mm -hmm. And it's also, if the baby's not in an optimal position, that's going to cause a lot of problems with, you know, just progressing and how mom is going to deliver this baby. Right. Um, One of the other side effects that go along, now there are some side effects with epidurals for mom. You might get some, you know, some itching, some nausea, um, fever, high or low blood pressure. So one of the first things they do when mom says, okay, I'd like to have an epidural is they start giving her IV fluids. Right, so standard practice, at least here, it's two bags of fluids before the epidural. So she's getting pretty, uh, filled with fluids. Yeah. So that mom is, and that's, you know, for the blood pressure. So she's getting, starting to get those fluids and she's going to receive those fluids probably through the majority of her labor now, mm-hmm. however long that's going to go. So that is the most common side effect. One of the other very, very common side effects is a fever. And we don't know why that happens. There's no way to tell. Is the fever caused by the epidural? Is it a side effect of the epidural? Or is the fever an infection brewing in her amniotic fluid somewhere? So the chances of mom and baby being separated and given antibiotics right after delivery are higher if mom spikes a fever. Mm-hmm. And we see that happen a lot. Those babies and, and mamas are separated for several hours so that they can do a little bit of workup, make sure the baby isn't you know, suffering from any kind of infection, and they find nothing, so then they bring the mom and baby back together. And that's a direct result of the epidural. Um, we also see mom receiving lots and lots of fluid. Labor slowing down, as I mentioned earlier, which, of course, adds Pitocin and other things, too, that add to those all those other interventions that come up with labor and delivery. So there are, there are a lot of maternal effects that happen here. Um, about 10%, one in a hundred, maybe I think they say 
will get an epidural headache. Mm -hmm. And what that is, is that is leaked spinal fluid, which causes a horrible migraine, usually setting in probably about the second day. Um, Not right away, but maybe like the next day in. These mothers are usually so incapacitated with this headache, they can't lift their head up, they can't hold their baby, they can't breastfeed, um, and they need to have medication or a blood patch to relieve their pain with this migraine. Um, And they say, okay, only 10% usually suffer from this, but when you're talking numbers like 97% of women are getting epidurals, that's a lot of women suffering from migraines. After their delivery. And not having that bonding time with their baby. And establishing the breastfeeding pattern. Right. And that goes on. And, you know, when I see moms in the pediatrician office, I see them, you know, they discharge from the hospital and then they go to their pediatrician the next day. And that's when I see them. And if they're struggling with that epidural headache, that's, they're not bonding still. They're still really struggling. Sometimes they still don't feel good or still kind of lingering there with them. Um, They're not able to breastfeed well. The baby's not latching well because they're really not able to follow through with this. And it's just, it's a horrible way to start. Right. It's really discouraging for them. Yeah, I think what we've covered, because so many, it's so commonplace, oh, just take the epidural, which is a choice, but are women realizing there are downsides? You know, I know that when a woman does choose to take an epidural, the anesthesiologist comes in, or it might even be the nurse, and or the resident, and they're signing all these papers, but no one's actually reading them, you know, so we're not actually looking at what these uh, side effects are, and no one's discussing with the mom at that point, because she's in labor. So let's also think a little bit about the baby, because a lot of people think that the epidural is not passed through the baby, but to my knowledge, that's not actually the case because I thought, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the medication does cross the placenta. Is that correct? It absolutely does. Yes. Yes. And there are still um, moms that tell me, oh, my doctor told me that it wasn't going to affect the baby. Um, And I always tell them, I try to make, you know, try to make a joke out of it almost and especially when I'm teaching childbirth classes and I say, you know, when you're pregnant, they tell you, you can't take anything stronger than a Tylenol <laughs> and then you're in labor and they're giving you opioids. <laughs> and I, you know, I how is that? Okay. And they're like, Oh yeah, that's right. They are doing that, but everything goes to the baby. It's, it's definitely, it's going to the baby. There's no doubt about it. And pretty quickly too. Um, and it does affect the baby. And can you give some specifics of how it affects the baby? Sure. So if it, depending, of course, you know, there's no, when I've done this um, presentation in the past, um, people say, well, you know, when does it and how does it and how long does it last? And of course, it's variable. It depends on how much medication is given and at what point in her labor is is she given the epidural? Is she given the epidural at five centimeters where it has time to really kind of, you know, wear off? Or is she given it that epidural at eight centimeters where it's still so potent that the baby got a you know a much much more epidural, mm-hmm. um, so a lot of it d- is dependent on the situation. But you know, if babies aren't able to move down well, they will get in distress. Mm-hmm. And lots of times, how many times do we hear those moms saying, "Oh, I had to have a C-section because the baby was in distress. The baby's heart rate was dipping." That is in direct result of the mom's blood pressure and of the baby not being able to get into a good birthing position. Right. Because of that epidural and mom not being able to move around, mm-hmm. uh, we have the risk of 
deliveries with vacuum and forceps, mm-hmm. which are linked to epidurals. And that is because mom is not efficiently pushing those babies out. They're tiring out because it's taking them longer. Labor is lasting longer. The pushing is not as effective because they don't feel those muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, the, and that's a very traumatic delivery for mom and for baby to have to use a vacuum or the forceps. Right. It's, and that affects breastfeeding in so many ways that affects breastfeeding. Um, the babies also, the epidural is linked to sucking problems like sucking reflex and the babies can be very sleepy with medicated deliveries. So they might not be interested in breastfeeding. They might not have a good suck reflex. They might not really be able to get that good, um, coordination for quite a while. It might take them quite a while to figure that out. Yeah, it's interesting. I did a little research on the, you know, I like to go really, I'm a bit of a geek this way, research effort. And so I oh, found I a 2011 study from the Cochrane database about epidural versus non-epidural and anesthesia in labor. And they did say, they were able to conclude that those that used epidural were increased for having an instrumental you know, vacuum or forcep delivery. And I know that it can affect the jaw. Is that correct? So it can be too tight or too loose. Um, when they're sucking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That I will say, honestly, vacuum extracted deliveries are some of the worst breastfeeders I've ever worked with. What do you usually recommend for that? A very, a lot of support. Mm-hmm. Um, honesty with the mom, but you have to be able to recognize this. You know, you have to to be able to know, you have to take the whole history, find out exactly what happened and really take the time to talk to the mother and find out what's going on and then look and see what's happening with the baby. So sometimes, you know, the moms don't realize that that has such an impact on things. Right. And I've had moms call me and they're going through all these problems, all the pain or, you know, the pain hurt, the breastfeeding hurts or baby's not gaining well and they're all this stuff. And then they're like, Oh yeah. They're, and I say, how are they born? Oh, there was a vacuum delivery. Well, there we go. That's what the problem is. They don't latch well. Their jaws aren't working the way we need them to work. They're, the mobility isn't there. Are they misaligned? Cause I've heard of some moms trying cranial sacral for that. Have you heard of that before? Yes, absolutely. And some of them are misaligned, absolutely misaligned or, um, just a lot of tightness. You see a lot of like those babies that don't open wide, oh. very tight jaws, chompy, not having a good suck pattern and just doing more chewing than sucking. Um, really struggling with getting them into a good position just because their heads are so tender jaundice. Oh, we know these yeah. that are vacuum extracted, their incidence of jaundice is higher. Those babies don't feed well at all when they're so sleepy from jaundice or they're separated from mom to go under lights. Yeah, the separation, I think, is one of the big problems. So how do you think this is going to, you know, the jaundice and um, the possible fever of the baby, that seems like it's going to affect, I call it the golden hour of bonding with mom because the baby's groggy or what do you think the mom can do to help remedy that? Oh, they, they're from what I have seen in the hospitals, they, you know, they separate that mom and baby and there's not a whole lot she can do. You know, I always, you know, skin is skin when, as soon as you can, when you can, as often as you can, if she's only got, you know, half an hour in between the babies under lights, um, use that time. 
and do that skin to skin with the with the baby. You know, don't take that time to have grandma hold the baby and, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And it's not that that's not important, too, because it absolutely is. But this is a time that mom and baby really need together. Um, when mom and baby are separated, for whatever reason, even if it's just to kind of do that little bit of a workup, a few hours in the special care unit, just to make sure the baby doesn't have any kind of infection, and then baby goes back with mom at some point, those babies still, I mean, they're separated from, they were separated from their mom and they just, they don't, they don't do as well. They struggle more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What do you think, can you explain a little bit how the usage of epidural can affect breastfeeding? So we know that, I mean, specifically, I think, because we talked about um, they take the, all this fluid, um, baby's more groggy, but is there anything specific with the breasts now that yeah. mom's taking the epidural? Yes. So with all of that fluid that mom is receiving and Again, it depends on the length of labor and the situation of what's going on, but we do find that a lot of women will receive bags of fluid. You, know, you said, you know, where you are, two bags is pretty standard mm-hmm. right before the epidural, and then they're continuing on. Right. So we see that that breast tissue gets very swollen, mm-hmm. and with that swollen breast tissue, mom is really struggling to try to latch baby in a comfortable way. So we don't see that swelling of the breast tissue really kick in until about the second day. So baby might be latching fine in that first 24 hours or the first 12 hours. Mm-hmm. And then the fluid starts to set in and the breast tissue becomes very edematous and the baby's struggling to latch on that very hard taut breast tissue. Mm. Or they're able to latch but not get on deep, which causes mom a lot of pain. So now we have a mom that's getting discouraged because this baby was latching fine and now no longer latching well. And if the medical staff that is helping her doesn't recognize that it's because of swollen breast tissue that is directly related back to that epidural, they're just going to, here's a nipple shield. Your baby's not latching well. You have flat nipples. I have so many moms that call me and say, oh, my, they told me my nipples are flat so the baby can't latch. It's not the mom's fault. The poor mom feels like she's the problem and it's not, this is one of the biggest problems we see with it is the, the fluid, that fluid. If it's really extensive amounts of fluid, you do sometimes see a delay in the milk coming in, which we call the lactogenesis too. Um, we will see that delay sometimes just because of that fluid overload. Um, you also will find that babies that receive that much fluid when mom is in labor, that their birth weight is escalated, which means that they drop lots of fluid early in, and those babies tend to lose more weight. Oh, and then the pediatrician's freaking out. (laughs) Right. Everybody's freaking out. The baby's at 10%. The baby's at 10%. And then that mom starts to supplement before they even leave the hospital or very soon after they leave the hospital because nobody's recognizing that this is a fluid issue. It's not a feeding issue. It seems so logical. 
Why do you think? <laughs> um, I mean, as you say this, I'm like, of course, that makes absolute sense. Do you think this knowledge just isn't part of the obstetrics canon of information? I I really do. I really think they don't give too much consideration past the baby's born. You know, I, I think they're looking at this and they're saying, okay, the baby's born. We'll give the epidural. There's nothing past, you know, once that baby's born, there is no effect of the epidural anymore. And, and that's it. And the, um, the mother baby nurses that are working with the moms, they don't have the training to see that this isn't a problem with an epidural. This isn't the baby doesn't want to feed because they're being stubborn or mom's nipples are too flat or, you know, the baby's just not latching well. It's none of those situations. It's we need to work with this because it's an epidural problem. All right, so then knowing that the numbers are staggeringly high, we need to support women because we know many of them are going to choose that. So here's a mom two days out. She's pretty swollen. Her breast tissue swollen. Um, nipple may be shallow or flat. What's the mom to do? Mom is to, well, of course, you know, I want to say not worry about it because we can get past it. But okay. we're talking about a mom that's two days out and that's, you know, hard to do. Yeah, and, and so, I'll probably panic thinking, oh, my God, I'm not – I don't have a good supply. And of course, the milk hasn't even really come in, at, you know, at that point. It's still colostrum. Exactly. And she's, you know, panicking because the baby's down 10% or, you know, whatever, whatever the issue is. Um, I always try to kind of, you know, put out the fire and talk them off the ledge and be like, you know, this is fine. It happens all the time. Every baby loses weight. It's okay if that's the – you know, if that's a problem – if it's a problem with pain, okay, we have to fix this. You know, let's make sure the baby's eating. Let's make sure that we're healing up, that we're fixing the latch. Ice for the swelling after every feeding, ice for oh, swelling. Okay. Um, that will help a lot with that, with that fluid. A lot drinking tons of water. You know, it sounds like it's not. Yeah, it helps flush. It, yeah, it helps flush your demon. Helps flush out. If it's really bad. Um, I have, I tell the mom, lay down flat on your back. If you can, if you're able to do this, lay flat on your back, put your feet up and let that fluid be absorbed by the lymph system, kind of going back and getting reabsorbed by the lymph system. And that will help as well. Um, Sometimes I do have them, depending on the situation, depending on the mom, um, have them maybe pump a little bit to soften up the breasts, Mm -hmm. reverse pressure softening to, you know, kind of manipulate some of that fluid, hand express, however the mom can get some of that milk out and get that um, breast tissue to soften up so that we can get a good latch for the baby is what we want to do. All of this is education for the mom too. So it's kind of been my stance that I want the moms to know about this. Not because we want to try to scare them off of getting epidurals, but because if they see these things happening, they'll go, oh, this is just because the epidural, I know it's going to pass, and the baby's going to feed fine, and then we'll be okay. But if they don't realize that that's a problem, and in a few days we can get past it, they're going to start giving bottles, or they're going to start supplementing with formula, because they don't realize that this isn't a forever problem, this is just something we need to get over. You just, I mean, what you just said complete golden nugget that 
if they realize it's because the epidural and not their body physiology and it will pass, then they can still have confidence to keep moving forward and not think, you know, not throw their hands up and say, I just can't do it. My nipples are sore. I don't think that's often discussed because we don't even talk about the side effects maternally or for the baby of the, during the birth. And now we're looking even further past about the side effects for breastfeeding. So that in itself is something we need to start reminding our women. You know, if you take it, that's fine. But just know if you run into problems, you can get past it. I don't think women think that way. And it's not their fault. No. I just don't think this information is given. Oh, I don't think it's given at all. But I don't think the personnel that's working with the mothers even have the information. Mm-hmm. I don't think they realize that this is an issue, you know, that this is settling in. There's so much research around this too. There's so much research. And I think people automatically jump to saying, well, we can't tell women not to get epidurals and nobody's saying that. I don't, right. I don't think anybody's saying that we're just saying informed consent, just like any other medical procedure anybody would get in their life. They want to know what's going to happen. What are the pros? What are the cons? How is this going to affect me? How is this going to affect my life? This is no different right. at all. It, it shouldn't be treated as any different. So having the mom have the emotional support of her partner or a lactation consultant saying, you know, we're going to get past this. And I'm guessing working with lactation consultants would be beneficial. I know a lot of the hospitals here have them on staff. Um, I don't know if you have that up in Rochester. So hopefully they can then also help the mom, uh, you know, talk her off the bridge. We do have it. Um, unfortunately, you know, it's like, okay, they're not there in the evenings. They're not there on the holidays. They're, you know, they're short staffed. There's mm-hmm. lots of births, whatever the situation may be. Um, of course, every lactation consultant has different training. Um, the pediatrician office I work in, it's very beneficial because I can recognize these problems. I can see what the history is and I can bring them back every other day if I want to, to work with them. And they don't have to worry about paying out of pocket for that service because it's part of their pediatrician visits. Okay. But we're really, that's the only pediatrician office in Rochester that does that. You know, there is nobody else that does that. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of peds offices offer lactation support. They might have, um, you know, somebody that's kind of designated, one of the nurses, but nobody to really spend the kind of time with the mom that she needs. And same with the hospital. There's really nobody to spend, to sit there, watch a feeding, show mom what's happening, discuss the problems and how, why it's, it is the way it is. They just don't have that kind of time. So where do you think a mom can then, you know, I'm all about setting oneself up for success. So she knows she's going to get the epidural. She knows the risk versus the benefit. She has the sense that, okay, now because of the breastfeeding, because the epidural might have breastfeeding issues, how can she, where can she find support if it may not be in the hospital? Definitely have that set up afterwards. So either private lactation consultants, fantastic, um, postpartum doulas. Mm-hmm. We have, we do have like a, you know, a handful of them here in Rochester. I'm hoping that it's going to become a little bit more popular. I don't know if it's something that's going on where you are. Mm-hmm. We do. We have uh, great postpartum doulas. And I think Dona in itself, the, the dual organization in North America, it's been exploding. And my, I think it's been 12 or 13 years since I've been a birth doula. I've seen it really explode. So not just birth doulas, but postpartum. So it's really becoming um, prevalent. And that's so exciting because to have that kind of support, you know, come to you when you're recovering from the birth of a baby and that we don't have enough support. We really don't. 
And um, I think postpartum doulas are fantastic, would be great for this La Leche League, any kind of peer support group. Um, Peer support for breastfeeding is huge. It is one of the biggest reasons why people succeed is peer support. They really want to be around people that are going through what they're going through, that understand what they're going through, that have experienced it. And that have that will listen to them and have time to talk with them, and it, it's huge. So whether it's an online support group, something on Facebook, something on social media, or if it's you know they're going to a support group, baby cafes and things like that that are exploding, all of that stuff will really give mom a lot of support. So knowing that before she has the baby makes a big difference, and that's why you know with the ten steps of baby friendly, that's the tenth step is making sure mom has all this info of who she can contact when she gets out. Can you, I'm totally putting you on the spot, but can you talk a little bit about the 10 steps of baby friendly? Yeah. What would you, anything in particular? No, I'm just, um, just enlightening us of some of the steps or all the steps. Oh, so, um, and of course it's 10 steps. If anybody's not familiar, baby friendly hospital initiative is, um, when hospitals decide to take the step to go baby friendly and a baby friendly hospital really all that means is they are agreeing to no formula, um, where the the hospitals will have to start paying for any formula that they have. And that's one of the biggest obstacles to becoming a baby friendly hospital. Hospitals will receive formula, you know, from the formula companies and they're not paying for that. So it's very easy to use. If hospitals are paying for the formula that they're giving out, they're going to be very stringent on who they're giving this formula to. Mm -hmm. So that breastfeeding is very much encouraged. Rooming in um, is one of the 10 steps. We have, you know, no formula, um, encouraging the breastfeeding, um, helping with, you know, latch, giving that support, educating the mother, um, making sure that she has her all her resources before she goes home, before she's discharged, no discharge bags, you know, all of, all of the things that would promote a healthy breastfeeding relationship. Um, we don't have too many baby friendly hospitals in Rochester. We only have a, we have one right here in the city of Rochester. And we also have a couple in the smaller outlying areas where they, you know, do just a, a smidgen of births, but um, not many, not many at all. Yeah, other countries. We have NYU, and I'm not sure if any of the other ones are, which is really surprising in such a big metropolitan city. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really surprising, but I think I almost feel like the bigger the city, the harder it is. You know, the harder it is to really decide. Okay, we're going to get rid of this formula, and we're going to have to purchase it, and we're not going to hand it out anymore. It's kind of like a security blanket. Yeah. You know, I mean, nobody wants to get rid of it. So that is the biggest obstacle and it's hard to become baby friendly. So people really, you know, you can kind of follow the, t- the steps a little bit and educating staff is another big step. Um, all the staff has to be educated and hospitals really have a hard time finding the time or the resources to educate staff, really, really educate staff, like a 20 hour training for staff about how to support breastfeeding women. Um, It's other countries have so many baby friendly hospitals. 
there's when I was in a couple years ago, I spoke for ILCA, which is the International Lactation Consultant Association. Mm-hmm. Um, I spoke at one of their conferences, and it was in Australia. And the there was somebody there from New Zealand saying that every single one of their hospitals was baby friendly in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Every single European hospitals, they're all baby friendly. Um, but here we have a harder time getting to that point. So it's it's a little discouraging, but the baby friendly hospitals have noted a huge, huge difference in their breastfeeding rates and their breastfeeding, not just breastfeeding rate, but breastfeeding duration overall. Well, that too, do you feel, I'm kind of going to that riffing off the duration. Do you feel that women give up, um, they, or get discouraged sooner if they haven't had the support and they have had an epidural? Yes, I do. I think with the, you know, with the epidural piece of it, I think they get really discouraged because they don't realize that that this is something that they just need to get past and the baby will feed okay Mm -hmm. once we get past these, these obstacles. Um, that's very discouraging to them or they're starting to supplement because of weight loss, which is very discouraging. Um, I, it really does have an effect on the duration of breastfeeding. Absolutely. It's probably so hard on the mom too. I've had so many students that come in and very, I can see it's very painful for them to say, I, I wanted to breastfeed. I did seek the support and I couldn't do it. I could see like every bottle of formula for many, I wouldn't say all, obviously there was like a surrender and then having to let it happen. Um, so, you know, the more we can support women and give them this information. So I love that. I I just learned that your thesis was on the impact of epidural anesthesiologist and, um, breastfeeding when you were diving into that and studying that, was there anything that really surprised you that you're like, wow, I can't, this is kind of groundbreaking. I can't believe people don't know this or it's not talked about. Oh my gosh. I don't know if there was anything specific. The reason why I did it, I just say, I'm kind of, I live my life a little backwards (laughs) and I, um, I, you know, got my IBCLC. Um, I worked for WIC and you know, I I was, it's a whole long story, but I was a single mom and, you know, started to work in the breastfeeding world for WIC and getting hours. And I decided I wanted to be an IBCLC and I was getting all these clinical hours, but did not have any college behind me. So I had to do tons and tons of clinical hours, sat for my exam after I passed my exam and became an IBCLC, I decided I would go to school and get my degree in it. Totally, you know. But it was great because I got to do my research papers on things that I was seeing and that I was dealing with at the time, which was fantastic. So that's how the epidural thing came up because I kept – I was working in a hospital setting at the time, one of our very busy hospitals up here. And I kept seeing these moms coming through, you know, epidural, 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 and how many – breastfeeding issues we were seeing that go along with that. So I was like, I think I'm going to do my research project on this because I wanted to learn more for me and how I could support these mothers and where this link was. So it was so eye-opening for me that I noticed it and then here it is, you know, here's all this information. Um, I think some of the biggest stuff for me was just, just the the link of it, you know, I, I spoke with one of the anesthet one of the nurse anesthetists in the hospital that I was working at at the time, and you know, and she was saying how women just they come in expecting to get this, 
they'll come in and she'll ask them, how's your pain level? And they'll say, it's okay. It's fine. When do I get my epidural? Mm -hmm. It's, it's just an expected piece of labor. Mm -hmm. And I, it just, it's such a, a nonchalant action. You know, um, I had a, a resident one time or a med student, actually, I was, I was talking about, you know, epidurals and breastfeeding and this med student just looked at me like I was out of my mind. And she said, you don't actually suggest women birth without medication, do you? It's like, well, no, but I suggest that they're educated on it. That's all, you know, because, but to just assume that we need it and there's no harm there. I think that was my biggest thing that there's so many people in the medical world who don't realize the impact this has. And when breastfeeding fails because of it, how damaging that is to the mother. Yeah. I mean, it it can be really heartbreaking if a mom really had her heart set on this and she found it a challenge and found she wasn't able to to do what she wanted and have that time with her baby. I mean, of and course moms and babies can still bond beautifully, but I think it could feel something like she'd have to really mourn if she really wanted to do it and couldn't, it could be a piece that kind of died within her. Well, yeah, they do absolutely have to mourn that. I agree. Um, and it's still, it's not, you know, I agree with you too. When you say it's not that they can't bond any other way, but it's more like if this is something the mom wanted, she should be able to have that or yeah. she should at least have a, good run at it. You know, she shouldn't be able to just kind of like, Oh, well, you know, baby won't latch. So I guess I have to give bottles now because this is too discouraging and hard for me. Um, she, she deserves a chance to be able to do that if it's what she wants. Mm-hmm. So a question. So you did the IBCLC and then the epidural information. So is this not something that's usually covered in the foundational lactation consultant, I guess, accreditation? the epidural part of breastfeeding? Mm, Not in this kind of depth, at least not when I went through it. Okay. No, that's interesting to know because, you know, I work with lactation consultants all the time and I've, that's why I was so excited to speak with you is because I've never really heard other people talk about that. And I, when I was pregnant, I took a breastfeeding class and, you know, I've read a fair amount, but this piece of information I just don't think is, is talked about. So it's kind of just kind of recap some of the tips that mom can do. Um, try to keep baby close to her. So why don't you jump, if you don't mind kind of going back, just kind of highlight, mom knows she's getting an epidural. What can she do to help herself, help her baby? Um, Also, I guess reminding them that babies come out pretty well stocked. (laughs) Yes, I tell people all the time, like your baby's not starving. Um, A lot of it is knowing the newborn behavior. I feel like, and you probably do a ton of this as well. I feel like a lot of what I do with my mothers is educate them on their baby behavior, Mm -hmm. almost more so than breastfeeding. And they really feel like, oh my gosh, the baby's starving, the baby's starving, the baby's starving. I'm like, no, the baby just wants to be with you. They just, they want to be close to you. They want to be skin to skin with you. They want to, you know, be able to suckle. They want to be comforted and cozy. It has nothing to do with food. They're not starving. It's just, it's not, it's not how it is. Uh, but the minute they see that baby acting like they want to eat, they just automatically say, oh, I don't, you know, the baby's starving. Right. But trying to really push that through, educate them lots of skin to skin, forgiving themselves if they, you know, end up saying, okay, I got an epidural. I had a ton of fluid. 
my feet are swollen, my hands are swollen, the baby's not latching well, I just need to, we just need to get through this, get the support, and the baby's going to latch fine after, once we get past it. Um, but we need to, one of the, the first rule is to feed the baby. We need to make sure the baby's eating, and we need to make sure that we're protecting and and supporting mom because if the baby's not latching well or the baby's not sucking well, we need to still stimulate that supply. So pumping so or self-expression. Pumping. Yeah, exactly. And now, you know, you have a mom that's so overwhelmed because she's got a baby that's not eating well and she's trying to latch and trying to feed and trying to pump her hand express and, so, you know, supplementing with that. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Well, and so they're just we have so an scur- idea of babies feeding, you know, what we see on in movies, TV, maybe with our friends. And that's because they're older, like a newborn baby. <laughs> I don't, I don't remember, you would probably know this. I don't remember the size, but they're very tiny tummies. They, don't they really are. They're, <laughs> yeah. They're a teaspoon. A teaspoon. Oh my gosh. Teaspoon. It's teeny. Teeny. And the first 24 hours, a teaspoon, and it doesn't have the ability to stretch. So in that first 24 hours, we're really only talking about a teaspoon. In the second 24 hours, it can start to stretch a little bit, but still very small amounts. Um, That's so small. I didn't realize with. that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 10 mLs is a teaspoon. So by the, so assuming, cause you know, in the first 24 hours, I know the colostrum's there. So by the time mom's milk actually comes in, how much is the baby eating, you know, a couple ounces or what are we thinking? Half an ounce. Half an ounce. Wow. Okay. Yeah. An ounce at the most, maybe, you know, for the first like week for baby transfers, half an ounce. You know, in the first day or two, or the first so you're day not or two, talking the copious month. amounts. Absolutely not. No. All right. This is really helpful. I think that's also going to help the moms um, calm themselves of babies not eating. What you're producing as a mom, and if you're self-expressing or pumping to help stimulate, it's we don't need to see huge amounts coming out. And I love your idea of just like remembering you can get past this and to find support. I think, um, I know I've told several moms, there's, because they always look at you with this distress of, what do I do? You know, like the baby's not feeding well. What do I do now? What what happens next? And I always tell them, you know, we can, the baby will feed. There's no doubt in my mind that the baby will, the baby will feed. It's the mom that can't tolerate it anymore. It's the mom that gets so frustrated with it and so overwhelmed and so discouraged that she's the one that gives up. When the mom sticks with it and she's got the support behind her, they do very, very, very well. But it's, you really need to have that. You need to have that support. And often set it up ahead of time so that the mom doesn't come out of labor having just had the birth experience, tired, perhaps overwhelmed. So if the mom, for those pregnant mamas out there, have in your list of people to call, have a lactation consultant. I love you're saying like the mom groups, the breastfeeding groups, La Leche League, so that you're not, they're not doing a Google search while they're half out of their mind. I don't know how... I have moms that call me and they're like, I found you on Google. I'm like, you deserve some kind of an award because I couldn't imagine even considering trying to Google help when I was three days postpartum. I I can't even imagine that. So it's just, 
we, and a lot of people do not think that breastfeeding is going to be an issue. They're, you know, more prepared for the labor and delivery. They're thinking that that's going to be the problem. They get, they go through weeks of classes and, you know, but they, nobody ever thinks that breastfeeding is going to be a problem because they figure it's natural and the baby will just do it. And I tell them, you know, it's, we don't birth naturally anymore. That took away the naturalness of the breastfeeding when we decided to birth with all these medical interventions. Well, you know, I had um, two natural births with, you know, without drugs, but I still needed help breastfeeding. And I would have thought having at that point been to over a hundred births, I would have known what I was doing. And I thought I did, but I'm very glad I had in my back pocket, I had an amazing lactation consultant that came and corrected me. And it wasn't until maybe the third week that I realized my latch was pretty wrong. Um, So support, support's helpful. Absolutely. You need to have it. Even just somebody to sit with you and say, this latch looks great. How does it feel? Do you have questions? You know, like any, anything, even if things are going really well, just to have the reassurance of, yeah, this looks great. You're doing a great job. A little encouragement. So can you oh, yeah. tell our listeners a little bit about more where to find you? Because I also know you have a new book, totally on, not off on this topic of the breastfeeding <laughs> epidural, but can you just give our listeners a little bit of an idea of, of your new book in case they want to grab it and then places they can find you? Sure. So um, the book is on trauma and breastfeeding. And um, as I mentioned to you before we started, I got into the trauma piece with my bachelor's degree. Um, I did my capstone project on how trauma impacts breastfeeding um, and what kinds of trauma impact breastfeeding. So I was working for um, an inner city pregnancy program here in Rochester. And Rochester is a very, the city of Rochester itself is, there's a pretty, pretty significant poverty rate. And um, we do have a lot of um, single mothers, a lot of young, young mothers, um, a lot of, you know, repeat pregnancies and, and, very negative outcomes. So I was working in this pregnancy program where there was a lot of trauma with these mothers. So I started doing research with that and it turned into a project, which is one of probably one of the most, um, it was just so amazing to, to work with these women and so eye opening. So the trauma was about, it could have been, child sexual abuse and how that can impact a mom's decision to breastfeed, intimate partner violence and how that can affect a mom's experience um, and her decision to breastfeed. It could be birth trauma. So things that we've already talked about tonight, things like forcep delivery, vacuum extracted delivery, um, birth trauma for the mother, C-section deliveries, you know, horrible birth experience and how that can interfere with her bonding and her ability to breastfeed. So that's that was really the focus of my book and what that was about and how to support those mothers who are going through this process. So it's a really interesting topic. Um, and and one that people don't really talk about too much because it's, it's a hard topic to talk about. Well, I think we should on another podcast. Um, (laughs) it doesn't quite go with our theme today, but I do think it's an important one. Um, I've worked with a few trauma victims uh, as a doula and I saw how gentle and mindful, so much more mindful about touch and permission Mm -hmm. and the way birth had to unfold. And so I can imagine that, how that can carry through with breastfeeding. So I would love to have another opportunity to talk about that. 
So can you tell people, are you on social media? Where can people find you? I am. So I do have a pretty active Facebook page. Um, it's Diane Cassidy Consulting, and it's um, D-I-A-N-N-E Cassidy Consulting. And I love it when people get on there. Um, one of the great things that was on there recently, I also facilit- co-facilitate a postpartum support group for women that are struggling with like postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression, and really just making that transition into motherhood and how, how hard that is, how difficult that is. So one of the moms that comes to our group just recently started a postpartum blog. Um, so we posted that up on our page and that's getting a lot of play and, you know, so just some great stuff. Um, lots of fantastic articles. I do a lot, not just with breastfeeding, but just baby stuff. You know, one of my degrees is maternal child health. So a lot of baby behavior and, you know, parenting and things like that. So I have a very active Facebook page. If anybody wants to come and see me there, um, I have a website. So, and that's also Diane Cassidy consulting. Um, and always, I always answer emails. So if anybody has questions specifically, or maybe a personal experience that they want to talk about, um, I would love to get emails and they can reach me off my website with emails as well. And I'll have all of this in our show notes. So if you're listening, like maybe you're walking or driving, don't try to type this <laughs> and you probably don't remember, especially if you're a new mom in that kind of fatigue state. Um, I'll have all this on our show notes so that listeners can just reach straight out towards to you. So, Diane, thank you so much for your time and for your information and for just the education so women can make. So, for my friends that are listening, thank you guys for your time today. And please go ahead and if you enjoyed this, if you liked other of our podcasts, jump over to iTunes and Stitcher and rate and review us and please tell your friends. And you can also check out our newsletter at prenatalyogacenter.com. And when you sign up for that, you get our four-minute ab video. It's all about using your transverse abdominals to push your baby out. All right. Well, have a great night and thanks for listening. Take care. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.